Hello, and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 17th, Spotlight on Wes Craven. So yeah, we're getting there. Um, <laughs> thanks for anyone who's been sticking with me this long. Uh, I apologize if my recordings have sounded a little more rambling and incoherent lately. I've been trying to record these all in a few sessions, just because I am a little constrained for time at the moment. Uh, but yeah, since we've already talked about Freddy earlier this month, and we'll be talking about Ghostface in about six days, I figured I'd talk about some of Wes Craven's uh, other stuff. I, you know, uh, two of them are kind of classics at this point. One was, you know, the first one we're going to be talking about today is actually his debut and probably his most controversial film in terms of the reception it got when it first came out. Uh, you can probably guess which one that is if you don't know already. Uh, one of them is another bit of a classic, The Hills Have Eyes, and two of them are kind of underrated, I think, or, you know, at least they were well-received, but I haven't heard them be talked about outside of, like, you know, horror or cinephile communities as much as the other two. Uh, but first, yeah, we're going to talk about Wes Craven's first movie, uh, at least his first, you know, above-ground director's uh, feature. It's The Last House on the Left. Yep. <laughs> that one. Which, no one, when it came out, wanted to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole, other than, like, Roger Ebert, who, you know, defended the movie's overall quality, even if it was fairly low-budget and kind of uh, grungy-looking. Which... I, I applaud Mr. Ebert for that, but yeah, it didn't get a very well reception. It was actually one of the more famous of the video nasties, which I brought up a few points, but if you're just tuning in, basically what happened with the video nasties was that there was a sort of, there was a moral panic in the 80s, you know, kind of like the, uh, you know, the satanic panic, only in this case it was videotapes. Uh, not to get too bogged down in that, but basically since there was no like big chain, uh, video store, which yeah, I'm just old enough to remember that those were a thing, <laughs> but there was no like big chain, like blockbuster, um, uh, in the UK at the time, basically anyone could get a distributor's license if they had the money and just abided by certain like trade practices and they could just sell any, um, they could just sell any tapes that they came across. They were more than able to just slap their own packaging on it, uh, which really freaked a lot of people out. Admittedly, I think that's a valid concern at that point because there wasn't much of a rating system at that point for home video. Uh, there had been one basically since the start of film for you know theater viewing. But it led to this sort of moral panic about the idea of, like, overexposure of young people's minds to violent or, you know, overly sexualized movies. So, a bunch of them, a bunch of movies got caught in the trawl, as it were. And they were confiscated using the Obscene Publications Act of 1959, which at that point had only been used to, cur to curtail pornography being distributed. But a lot of people argued that maybe it the obscenity should extend to some of these movies. And given the fines, a lot of people understandably wanted to know what movies were on the, you know, no-go list. 
and there was a little over 150 in total that were officially on the list. There were the 72 official ones, and then there were the 82 that were called uh, Section 3s, which meant that you wouldn't be prosecuted for distributing, but they'd still be confiscated. And the last house on the left was not only on the 72 list, it was on the 39 that were never dropped from the list. They were... Once it got on, it stayed on until the whole video nasties era ended. And like I said, no one wanted to really defend it because, you know, admittedly, it's a rape and revenge movie and it's, you know, you've seen this a few times since then and a couple times before, but not as explicit. And it's it's still kind of heavy stuff at this point. Uh, Stephen King actually called it the work of morons with video cameras. Those are his words. So, you know, even the horror people weren't even the horror people weren't going to stand up for this movie. Which is really kind of sad, because, you know, it's a... I wouldn't say it's a fun watch, but it's gripping. You know, it's a horror movie, and, you know, it's meant to be kind of upset. It's meant to be really upsetting. Uh, but, yeah, so... Wes Craven directed. He kind of rewrote it to be less overtly... To not be to be a straight-laced horror film, not to be like the porno film that he actually intended it to be originally. Uh, it's basically a rather violent remake of the The Virgin Spring, uh, the Ingmar Bergman film, which basically takes place in like the Middle Ages. This is modern, well, modern day. It was the 1970s. We have, as our main character, uh, Mary Collingwood, uh, she and her friend, I believe the name is Shirley. I haven't, I haven't had the chance to rewatch in preparation for this, but I have enough stored in my memory about the movie overall. So they go into town to, you know, visit a rock concert, and when they're there, they try and you know score some weed off people because you know it's the fucking seventies, and they're abducted by a gang of fugitives laid and led by this guy named Krug, who. You know, I talked about this briefly in the episode on Nightmare on Elm Street, but Krug, much like Kruger, was derived from an actual childhood bully named Fred Kruger that Wes Craven had to deal with growing up, played by David Hess, who apparently, according to the you know young woman who played Mary, was pretty much was not acting most of the time. He was pretty much a scumbag and a bit of an asshole to deal with, and. He and one of the other actors kind of singled her out for abuse because they felt she wasn't, you know, acting good enough. You know, so naturally the response was to chase her down a hallway waving a knife around, and she said later that she would not have been surprised if she found out that Hess was actually a serial killer. So, yeah, that was the kind of, you know, I'm not going to, like, hold Wes responsible for that because I don't know what he thought about this whole thing, but if he knew it all. But, you know... That's the kind of atmosphere that this movie had, even behind the scenes. So, you know, sadly, Mary and uh, Shirley are both raped and killed. Uh, the fugitives later come upon the Collingwood home, and, you know, they kind of, you know, persuade their way into the house, uh, acting like they're lost and they just need to, like, get out of the, get out of the rain, as it were. I don't remember if it was rain, but you know what I mean. And, you know, unbeknownst to the fugitives, this is the Collingwood home, so it's Mary's family. 
And then Mary's parents don't know what happened to their daughter. They just know that she's not, you know, home yet. And she was supposed to be a while ago. And then they notice, and then they both kind of notice things at the same time. They notice that one of them has an item of Mary's on them. And the fugitives see pictures of her around and realizes that's her family. And so Mary's parents kind of flee into the woods because they think the fugitives are going to do something to them now. And they stumble upon Mary's body, which is kind of washed up from the river. So they figure it out. And then for the rest of the movie from that point on, it's basically just a little cat and mouse game. And it's interesting because it's basically confined to this one property. And yeah, like I said, it's a rough watch, especially when you see what happened to Mary, but it's still rather captivating. And I'm glad that it's been, I'm glad that it's been rehabilitated. You know, it's still heavy stuff, like I mentioned, but you know, the general atmosphere around the movie is you're allowed to like it without people thinking you're some kind of like sex offender or serial killer. Because like I said, even the horror people didn't want to touch this. It's even got a sort of, you know, glossy remake from 2009. Uh, it's been a while since I watched that. It's not really that great. The The only thing I kind of liked about it was that there was one kill near the end where basically the dad uh, did something to... Well, I kind of like the fact that the Mary character in the new one did actually survive, minor spoiler, and that near the end the dad actually paralyzes one of the fugitives and then he just sticks his head in the microwave and he, d- and he like takes some of the, um, you know, safety features off so that he can run it with the door open and you don't actually see it, but you just hear like him screaming off, off camera. I'm like that's, that's a creative one. I, I would not have thought of that even with the amount of horror movies I've watched, but you know, it's had a rough, it had a rough go it was first released, but it's since become a bit of a, a horror classic. Um, I'm sure there's been a fair few, you know, rape and revenge movies that have kind of had this as the format. I know there was like a old Western one called Hanny Calder. I don't remember if it came out before or after this, but it's also a similar plot. And <laughs> I do like what the... Uh, writer and critic Kim Newman said about it. He said that it's possible that just the plot got it on to the video's nasties list, meaning that if Virgin Spring had been available on home video at the time, it probably would have ended up on the list too, just because, you know, once the plot has gotten sort of blacklisted, you know, everything else similar would probably follow. But, you know, if if scenes of sexual violence are going to be like a deal breaker for you again, I would not fault you at all if you avoid this movie, but for anyone who can stomach it for the time that it's on screen, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. I mean, you know, this got Wes Craven's career started and was one of the first, it was like the first collaboration between him and Shauna coming Cunningham who would, you know, obviously with Friday the 13th, become a horror director in his own right. Uh, so moving on to a couple of years later, we have the original Hills Have Eyes. So the, cl- 
It's this classic tale of a little middle-class family stuck in the Nevada desert. Uh, part of the reason is this weird thing where, like, the the parents involved, uh, it's their 25th anniversary. It's the, you know, silver anniversary, and apparently they find out that uh, their family has the rights to an old silver mine in the area, so they're going to go visit it. But car breaks down when they get lost, and they end up being harassed by this cannibal family. Now, it's worth noting that um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, I want to say... I want to say a couple years prior. Oh, no. Yeah, it was uh, three years after Texas Chainsaw came out. So, and funnily enough, not only did they actually reuse a lot of the same, you know, props from Texas Chainsaw, like for the Cannibal Family's lair, the interior design of that, but actually uh, Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface in the original, was actually offered a role uh, as the head of the Cannibal Family. He declined because he wanted to, you know focus on his literary career. And he did say later that he regretted it, but, you know, I respect him wanting to focus on his writing. Uh, you know, it's got an interesting origin. It wasn't just Texas Chainsaw. Wes Craven also cited the legend of Sonny Bean, who, for those that don't know, um, Alexander Sonny Bean was the leader of a 48-person clan in the Highlands of Scotland. And reportedly, they killed and cannibalized about a thousand people over the course of a few years. And when this was finally discovered, they were all arrested and they were all uh, tortured extensively, as you might imagine. And then they were hanged, drawn, and quartered. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to go into that here. I, it's fucking weird, man. But, you know, he's lived on in the history of horror fiction, even though they don't know his name. Uh, if Sonny Bean, by the way, sounds familiar to any um, anime fans listening, if you've seen Attack on Titan, way back in Season 1, um, the two Titans that Hanji captures and names Sonny and Bean, that's a reference to that. There's also a reference to Albert Fish and Andre Chikadalo, who were both serial killers that were also uh, cannibals to some extent. More so with Albert, but you know, it was a weird, it was a weird little Easter egg to find in that show. Which, by the way, go fucking watch that. It's almost over. You can binge the whole thing in a few days. Go do it. It is worth it. Aaron is on some other shit, but. <laughs> But, you know, getting back to it, what makes this, in my mind, a work of serious horror fiction is that it's very it's very reflective of the time period that it came out in. There was, it, this was still the aftermath of the, you know, the Vietnam War, the 60s counterculture. There's a lot of elements of, you know, class conflict because, you know, obviously the cannibal family is doing this because... They're in a desperate place. They're very struggling to get by. Obviously, it's horrible what they're doing, because especially they're doing it to other people. But, you know, it's understandable that they're just trying to survive. 
Um, I don't know if there was intentionally any commentary on nuclear energy. I just know that they were like near a testing site. Um, it's in, it take, I mean, it's shot in California, but it's takes place in Nevada and it's out by Nellis air force base, which is right next to like an old, you know, nuclear testing site. So I don't know if the radiation had anything to do with the mutations involved, but it's also that it's also just the general like sense of how fragile the concept of civilization and morality is because, you know, obviously West is not saying that the, you know, the middle class family that's being harassed in this case is, you know, as bad or worse as the cannibal family, but more just the fact that they need to resort to over the top violence and kind of stoop to the level of the barbarians to kill the barbarians. So, you know, kind of like, well, you know, there's also the argument been made for like Mary, sorry to double back to last house, but there's also been a number of um, film critics that have also cited the idea that what happens the whole last house on the left isn't just like a single singular revenge story and about the sort of, you know, gray morality that comes into that with like vigilante justice. But it's also just the idea that it was also meant to be like a metaphor of, you know, America losing its sort of image of innocence in the aftermath of Vietnam. Because you had the image of like American supremacy had kind of been broken because we had expended so much money, lost so many soldiers in a war that we didn't even end up winning. And understandably, when that happens, people started, you know, pointing fingers and assigning blame. And a big part of that was a lot of people felt like it was the fault of the counterculture that you know, degraded public morality and undermined support for the war and not the fact that, you know, the government lied as to why we got involved in Vietnam to begin with. It didn't pursue a strategy that fit trying to combat an insurgency. We had a military that was basically using outdated tactics. And even though, you know, as a lot of historians will point out, the U.S. didn't really lose any real battles in Vietnam. It didn't end up mattering. Top it all off, there was now, you know, panic over drugs. The satanic panic was coming into effect. There was a spike in crime. And, like, an actual one, not like the one everyone's talking about now. But, you know, the whole thing was just growing out of the disillusionment that a lot of people had coming out of the 60s and going into the 70s especially because this was a time where, again, going back to timely topics, although this seems to be timely every five years at this point, there was economic crisis and inflation. And, you know, a lot of people were pointing out the theme of a lot of these kinds of movies of sort of class conflict. You know, the victims are, you know, they're still victims, but they're kind of arrogant, self-entitled, you know, bourgeois people. They're middle class and usually the upper end of middle class and the villains are usually people who are kind of down on their luck or poor 
for some reason or other. So, yeah, as I said, it's very reflective of the time period, and I think that's why it kind of stuck around as a horror classic. As for a couple of Wes's later films, and by the way, I'm not talking about Hills of Eyes 2 because, honestly, I just didn't feel like including it here. Apparently, Wes disowned the film pretty soon after it came out, saying that he wrote it simply because he needed money and the studio just wanted something that was marketable. And, you know, a sequel to The Hills Have Eyes would be something like that. It didn't end up going well. Uh, I don't remember much about the movie, but I don't remember liking it very much, but maybe I'll change my mind about that. But it says a lot when the follow-up to a horror classic like that has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is actually pretty hard to do. Because, you know, even critics, there will usually be one that will put up at least a a lukewarm defense of a bad movie. So the fact that it's got zero kind of says a lot, I think. But, you know, continuing the whole, like, class conflict theme, we've got uh, The People Under the Stairs, which came out in 1991. And, again, it kind of references time of political events. At one point, you see like, news footage from the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, in this house. What happens is there's this little, uh, I guess you could call him a street kid, uh, who goes by the nickname Fool because of his sister's tarot card readings. What happens is he, well, his family is in this, like, rundown slum. Because they miss their rent payment, they either have to give them, give their landlord triple the payment or be evicted. In three days. Oh, not, no, not sorry, three days. They have to give them triple the payment or they have to get out, like, tomorrow, basically. So he takes a job with this guy, Leroy, played by played by Ving Rhames. Uh So he's kind of cool, anyway. And Leroy's friend, Spencer. And, you know, Leroy's a friend of uh, Fool's sister. And what happens is that they actually target their landlord's uh, house, because supposedly there's a there's a large collection of gold hidden somewhere in the house, and if it could be you know discreetly liquidated, it could really help out um, Fool's family. Now, what turns into a standard attempt at a heist uh, quickly devolves into a sort of survival horror, because they end up uncovering a secret about the couple that lives in the house. Again, it's partially meant to be a, like, satire about, you know, American class conflict and lifestyle, especially because the, you know, main character is a kid from a slum and his family's being evicted. The the owners of this house are, you know, obviously, as I said, the landlords. Uh, in contrast, they're homeowners, not renters. And they're very, they're very traditional, is the way they're presented. They almost... One reviewer said they're like the nightmare version of Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And, you know, he's a slumlord. He has, like, no concern for the welfare of his tenants. And it's mostly motivated by him wanting to tear the building down so he can sell the property and make new condos. Uh, It's partially inspired, supposedly, by a story from the 1970s where police were investigating a burglary, and they uncovered a fairly horrid case of child abuse. 
And I'm not going to give too much away, but again, the title kind of says a bit towards that. Uh, I It runs a bit long, in my opinion. The pacing is a little weird, but... It's it's still a fairly good watch for anyone that has the patience for it. It's only like an hour and 40. It's just that the pacing is kind of wonky and very front-heavy. It's got some good, like, tense horror sequences. It's got some good effects. My only other real complaint is that there's some moments where there's really obvious, like, sped-up photography to make the action seem a little more intense. And it, it does kind of stick out uh, from the rest of the movie. And finally, we have his classic voodoo horror film, The Serpent and the Rainbow. So we've got uh, Bill Pullman playing Dennis Allen, Harvard professor. He's an ethno, he's an anthropologist. And he ventures into Haiti to investigate reports of a man who was supposedly returned to life as a, uh, as a voodoo zombie. Uh, this was more common in like the older pre-Romero movies like White Zombie. Uh, it's loosely based off the book of the same name by anthropologist Wade Davis. Davis, sorry. He was investigating a report of a man, and I'm sorry if I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. French is not a language I'm familiar with, but Clavius Narcisse, a Haitian man who had supposedly been zombified with a sort of powder. And, you know, the main reason for his involvement is accepting a job from a friend who works for a a pharmaceutical company in Boston. So, you know, uh, again, the, uh, you could probably read a bit of like class conflict into that because, you know, you have at least upper class, uh, you know, white American guy going to as everyone apparently seems to be contractually obligated whenever Haiti comes up to refer to it as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and one of the poorest in the world. But he's going in because he's motivated by money. Uh, admittedly, you know, admittedly, you could argue his intentions are at least somewhat good because if this thing can anesthetize people so much that they look like they're dead for a little bit and then it just wears off, you know, it has the potential to be a fairly good anesthetic if used properly. But the thing that ends up dragging him down is that this journey gets complicated because, you know, in an attempt to find it, he leads into a tense atmosphere because the locals are trying to keep him from poking around too much. And on top of that, some of the people using this for uh, more malevolent purposes include this guy named Petrod, who is involved with the Haitian secret police at the time. This is this is still the Duvalier regime. Uh, this wasn't Papa Doc anymore. This was Baby Doc. But, you know, the Tonton Makut are still around, as they were called. For those that don't know, this was the nickname given to Duvalier's secret police. And to give you some ideas to why they were feared, Tonton Makut may sound like a silly name, but it basically means Uncle Gunnysack. This was kind of like a boogeyman figure in Haitian folklore. It was basically the thing you told that told your kids was going to get them if they misbehaved. He was this sort of... He was this 
mythical figure that wandered around as an old man with like a burlap sack over his shoulder. And he'd snatch up misbehaving children and take them back into the woods, into his hut, and he'd kill them and eat them for breakfast the next morning. So, yeah, (laughs) your organization doesn't get a nickname inspired by a mythical being that eats children and not be total assholes, basically. So, on the one part, it's basically a sort of supernatural horror film. At the same time, it's also got, like, some minor elements of political thriller. So, you know, again, this one's got some weird pacing, but the effects are really cool near the end in the third act. There's a very sort of nightmarish atmosphere throughout the whole thing, but especially at the end. So, uh, it's on Peacock if you have a premium subscription. Uh, You can watch it there. Uh, Same thing with People Under the Stairs. I think... Think the Hills Have Eyes is on Shutter North America. I don't know about Last House on the Left, though. So, anyway, that is going to be it for Wes Craven. A, you know, definite worthy inclusion on the Masters of Horror, which we will get to later this month. And aside from some rather <laughs> embarrassing black spots on his filmography, like Hills Have Eyes 2... Uh, I'd say he's probably one of the best horror directors ever. Uh, he's also, I didn't even get to like, uh, Summer of Fear or Invitation to Hell or this made for TV movie called Chiller that he did. But, you know, you have those names, you can look them up on your own time. We are going to be returning tomorrow to talk about a director of independent film didn't have quite the same budget that West did a lot of the time doesn't have the same name brand recognition but he's got some great movies in his own right and I think he's worth talking about so come back tomorrow we'll be talking about the works of Larry Cohen thanks for joining I'll see you all tomorrow have a good night signing off